You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring our December 2022 issue of the Journal. Now, in this podcast, we'll be featuring two systematic reviews, three research articles, and also a short author interview for a health policy article. Our first feature article is a systematic review conducted by Kirsten Walls, Lydia Elliott, and Tamara Pearson, and it's titled Alternatives to Glucocorticoid Monotherapy in the Treatment of Polymyalgia Rheumatica. Now, the treatment of polymyalgia rheumatica can be challenging, and the most efficacious and cost-effective treatment is usually some type of glucocorticoid, with necessary treatment duration usually one year or longer. And this duration of use is often associated with significant morbidity. Numerous studies have been and are being conducted that focus on alternative treatment modalities. The authors conducted an integrative literature review to evaluate peer-reviewed literature on the topic. They found that agents such as methotrexate and tocilizumab have been used successfully in conjunction with oral glucocorticoids and have demonstrated steroid-sparing effects. A promising adjunctive treatment is the monoclonal antibody tocilizumab, which has been studied as both adjuvant and monotherapy. Further research in the efficacy, safety, and affordability of these agents is warranted. In terms of implications for practice, the authors mentioned that because polymyalgia rheumatica is commonly diagnosed and managed in primary care, providers should keep abreast of the most current recommendations concerning optimal treatment and carefully weigh the risk versus benefits of long-term glucocorticoid use. This is an expanding area of research that can assist primary care providers to better treat and manage polymyalgia rheumatica, as well as reduce long-term treatment risk by minimizing corticosteroid use when possible. Our next systematic review is by Shira Klausner, and it's titled, Low-Dose Aspirin as Primary Prevention for Adults Without Cardiovascular Disease. Cardiovascular disease has long been the leading cause of death in the United States. Patients with cardiovascular disease risk factors are often put on low-dose aspirin to prevent future cardiovascular events and cardiovascular death. However, evidence supporting this practice is limited. So the authors sought to examine whether adults without a history of cardiovascular disease, specifically, benefit from taking daily low-dose aspirin as primary prevention for cardiovascular disease and death. She conducted a systematic review for studies that specifically address this issue. She located four, and all four studies concluded that daily low-dose aspirin used for primary prevention does not lower the risk of death from cardiovascular disease. Further research needs to be conducted to determine whether daily low-dose aspirin is beneficial in individuals without a history of cardiovascular disease. Now, why is she saying that? Well, one of the things the author mentions is the updated guidelines from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that came out in April of 2022 for aspirin's use as primary prevention. The newest guidelines recommend that adults aged 40 to 59 years who have a 10% or greater risk for developing cardiovascular disease and are not at an increased risk of bleeding should be started on aspirin on a case-by-case basis. 
but adults 60 years or older should not be started on low-dose aspirin as primary prevention. And that's a grade D recommendation. So as you see, not all the research has been done, and there still seems to be some controversy around this issue and some variance in guidelines. Nurse practitioners need to know the most current evidence-based practice recommendations to appropriately counsel patients about whether they should be taking low-dose aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease. Our next feature this month is by Stephen Bauman and William Samuels. It's titled Comorbidities in Older Adults with Opioid Use Disorders. Here's the abstract. There's a growing number of opioid use disorders and overdose deaths in older adults. And in addition, older adults with opioid use disorder routinely receive lower quality preventive and chronic care, and this can result in poorer overall health. So the purpose of the study was to identify older patients with opioid use disorder and determine the prevalence of medical and psychiatric comorbidities. The authors used a retrospective study using a computer algorithm employed by a network of federally qualified health center primary care clinics in lower New York State. And with the approval of the Institutional Review Board, the IT department in the organization captured data about older adults with the opioid use disorder diagnosis they identified 664 patients and provided anonymized demographic and medical history data of the patients for analysis. The results showed that patients with opioid use disorder had two to three times more medical and psychiatric co-occurring conditions than a national sample of older adults with no opioid use disorder that were of similar age and income. The most frequent co-occurring medical conditions in the patients were heart or circulatory disorders, movement disorders, respiratory disorders, pain disorders, nutritional disorders, and metabolic disorders. The most common co-occurring psychiatric conditions were anxiety disorders, major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and bipolar disorder. Conclusions were that older adults with opioid use disorder often have complex healthcare needs that often include one or more chronic medical and psychiatric conditions. And the implications, of course, are that providers should be aware of the multiple needs of older adults with opioid use disorder so that appropriate and comprehensive care can be offered to these patients. Our next article is the first of two features this month that focus on nurse practitioner practice during the COVID-19 pandemic. This article is by Nushin Bastani and Amelia Malcolm, and it's titled Assessing the Impact of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Nurse Practitioners' Professional Quality of Life. The COVID-19 global pandemic has put healthcare professionals under immense pressure and hindered their ability to provide quality services. And so the study done by these authors aimed to examine the professional quality of life among Georgia nurse practitioners during the global pandemic. The methodology consisted of a professional quality of life survey distributed to nurse practitioners in Georgia by the professional organization's listserv. There were multiple ANOVA analyses performed to assess differences between employment settings, geographic location, and other relevant demographic qualifiers, and levels of compassion satisfaction, burnout, and secondary traumatic stress. 100 nurse practitioners responded to the survey. 91% of these were female, and the majority were ages 25 to 35 years. Of note was that male nurse practitioners showed higher rates of compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress. 
The authors found that the Professional Quality of Life Survey demonstrated increased burnout and secondary traumatic stress among frontline practitioners in Georgia due to increased workloads, feelings of inadequacy, fear of being infected by the virus, and also prolonged exposure to deaths. Implications for practice were to ensure effective communication is occurring, that there is team collaboration, that there's emotional and psychological support, as well as adequate staffing to help reduce compassion fatigue among nurse practitioners. Before our final article this month that includes an author interview, I want to talk about one more feature, and this is a qualitative research study conducted by Isadora Fox and Jane Champion, and it's titled A Qualitative Thematic Analysis of Mentorship for New Psychiatric Nurse Practitioners. Now, a volume of literature reflects that mentorship is, of course, key in producing quality nurse practitioners. Mentoring leads to increased confidence, role clarity, and other benefits that improve practice. However, there's little to no research focusing specifically on the impact of mentoring in psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. So the purpose of this study was to explore the process of acquiring mentorship and mentoring experiences of newly graduated psych mental health nurse practitioners. The study also sought to describe perceptions of mentoring in psych mental health nurse practitioner leaders. For the methods, there were nine new graduate psych mental health nurse practitioners and 10 psych mental health nurse practitioner leaders that were recruited from membership rosters of professional organizations in the southwestern United States. The informants participated in semi-structured interviews with questions sourced from an interview guide. The interviews were conducted via video conference or telephone and data were coded via an in vivo approach and analyzed by thematic methods. Results showed that new graduates reported that mentoring was dependent on four themes, connectivity, educational stewardship, practice confidence, and luck. Mentor access via work, institutions, or schools was inconsistent. Leaders were concerned about limited educational and professional investment in mentorship because this process is an important component of professional development. Conclusions were that mentorship for new graduates is based on a variety of factors, some of which are out of the mentee's control. Lack of mentoring may affect practice, which affects patient care. Dialogue between educators, professionals, and organizations may improve mentoring stewardship. Implications for practice are that enhanced communication between educational institutions and professional organizations to create a more fluid process from graduate to mentorship is needed. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy Klein. Dr. Klein is an associate professor in the College of Nursing at Washington State University in Vancouver. She's a family nurse practitioner with expertise in both primary and urgent care. She holds affiliate appointments in prevention science and public affairs. She's also a preceptor and affiliate faculty with the Oregon State University College of Pharmacy in the PharmD program. And she serves as the assistant director of the Washington State University Center for Cannabis Policy Research and Outreach. Her main research focus concerns the interface between public policy and prescribing patterns as they relate to practitioner, patient, and institutional factors. She and her colleagues, Ross Bindler, a pharmacist, and Louise Kaplan, another nurse practitioner and faculty member at Washington State, co-authored an article featured in this month's issue titled Nurse Practitioner Practice Under the COVID-19 Public Health Emergency, Did Policy Change Persist? Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here today and share this study with our a colleagues. 
Well, your article points out that the COVID-19 public health emergency offers opportunities to study legislative and policy changes impacting nurse practitioner practice limitations. And this was very interesting. You studied states with restricted or reduced practice as identified by the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Your analysis did three things. You identified and correlated key changes in policy during the public health emergency with state regulatory, governmental, and practice variables. And you also modeled predictive characteristics that facilitate or impede policy persistence. And finally, you explored the lived experience of nurse practitioners working in eligible states with policy changes during the public health emergency. You conducted focus group interviews with nurse practitioner leaders, as well as analyzing the 2019 to 2021 legislative sessions. Nurse practitioners identified three types of persistence during the public health emergency. One was the power differential between physicians and nurse practitioners. Secondly, the existing day-to-day -day environment. And finally, barriers to change. Now in 2019, significantly more legislation was passed in states with sunset laws. During 2020, 15 states introduced a total of 22 bills focused on nurse practitioner practice, although only four states passed one bill each. And in 2021, states with an independent board of nursing structure introduced more nurse practitioner legislation than did those states with a non-independent board structure. Few public health emergency policies persisted despite robust predictions that this was likely to occur. Independent board structure and sunset laws were associated with legislation introduction and passage. You concluded that policy persistence is complex and based on multiple state and environmental variables, and you urged persistence in nurse practitioner advocacy strategies. Great article. And first, I have to compliment you on the section of your article that includes definitions of key terms. Anyone who listens to me knows that that's a pet peeve of mine. Failure to define terms and make them measurable just doesn't help advance understanding. So I want to thank you for that. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your methodology? I know you focused on 28 states with some level of restricted practice. Tell us a few more details about how you went about exploring what was going on in those states. I know listeners will be interested in that. Uh, well, Kim, this was a mixed method study, so it had both a quantitative and a qualitative component to it, as you previously mentioned. So to look at the quantitative data and gather it, we first triangulated information from several sources to evaluate policy change and map them initially on a large Excel spreadsheet using AANP's state practice environmental definitions for full, reduced, and restricted practice. That helped us identify our study states, which were states with reduced or restricted practice. We did not study full practice authority states, although they may have had legislative changes during the public health emergency. We were interested specifically in determining if the COVID emergency would move the bar for those reduced or restricted practice states and which variables could be associated with policy change that might become permanent. So we identified our variables based on both AANP's input and state law tracking, as well as the Kaiser Health Foundation, which tracks federal law re related to practice areas like telehealth and Medicare and Medicaid that are important to access to care. We also use publicly available dashboards from the National Council of State Board of Nursing's website to track changes in scope law and regulation from state to state specific to NPs along with the National Conference of State Legislatures website. 
So we checked this information that we found in all of those publicly available websites with original data from each state's regulatory website. So as you can imagine, there was a fairly lengthy process of checking and double checking um, our sources. So as you mentioned, having definitions for our variables was really, really important, as well as having agreement on all those variables and how they would be interpreted. To help us do that, we then met monthly with AMP Government Affairs and Research Office staff, who were our official collaborators on this project. And they helped us analyze AMP's monthly statistics on scope change and our interpretation of the data to reach agreement. We tracked our data over a three-year period starting January 1st, 2019, so that was the pre-emergency phase of our data collection, to December 31st, 2021. The coded data on the large Excel spreadsheet was then analyzed using regression to identify factors which predict or do not predict persistence of change in scope occurring during the emergency. Finally, we scheduled focus groups with NPs in restricted or reduced states to discuss their experiences with any policy changes over the COVID emergency. Seven NP leaders were interviewed representing states in all four census areas. We chose to end the study at the end of December 2021, since at that time many states were lifting the COVID emergency laws. Of note, the federal emergency still existed when we finished our study. And that continued to allow uh, funding and other resources to go to states. It may or may not have changed the practice environment by that time. It's so interesting to me how you worked with AANP to get that methodology straight and you were able to make sure that you had the correct states that you wanted to study. And then you combine that with actual feedback from nurse practitioners. Now, would you also please discuss for us the construct of persistence and what you and your team found in your qualitative interviews about each of the three types of persistence that you mentioned um, and that the nurse practitioners um, talked about in your study. Yes, that was really interesting because that was an opportunity to have um, you know, individual conversations with people who are experiencing the impact of this emergency on their actual day-to-day -day practice. The definition of persistence that we used in this study came from an article by Coate and Morris in 1999. They were economists from Cornell and Yale, respectively, who published this in the American Economic Review. They noted that conventional wisdom in political economy warns that once an economic policy is introduced, it is likely to persist. Even when its original rationale is no longer applicable or has been proven invalid, a policy will prove hard to remove. We know that NPs are economically efficient and that they provide greater access to care. We wondered if changes, both literal in terms of law and environmental in terms of practice, would persist after the official emergency declined. There was great optimism that these changes would become permanent. In our interviews, though, NPs continued to identify policies which did not change, such as hospital bylaws, as being barriers to real practice change. They noted a continued power differential between physicians and NPs, which impacted truly persistent change. Participants reported that one key exception to this change in environment was the federal passage of the CARES Act 
that authorized NPs to order home health services for Medicare and Medicaid patients consistent with state law. This in turn allowed some states to amend their laws or rules to authorize NPs to order home health in their state. The CARES Act also increased the use of telehealth and its reimbursement. And this provided nurse practitioners more flexibility in terms of how services were delivered. So almost all of them mentioned telehealth as having a significant impact on their provision of care. I can certainly see how that would happen in terms of increasing use of telehealth. We're actually getting a lot of submissions of manuscripts from people who are studying telehealth because it's being implemented so much more and so rapidly. I think a, a good point that you just made is to distinguish for people the difference between what happens with state level policy and whether or not that impacts institution level policy. And that's what those nurse practitioners were experiencing. So can you tell us uh, what were some of the most surprising and most significant findings from this study from your viewpoint? I do think, Kim, that I had expected more changes to persist in terms of state laws. But once the emergency ended, most state laws went back to where they were before. So that's counter to the original theory of policy persistence. The observations regarding the need to address hospital bylaws as barriers was also consistent with our prior studies on nurse practitioner hospitalists that Dr. Kaplan and I published. The significant findings from the quantitative component of our study demonstrated successful policy change was not associated with the COVID emergency, but was positively associated with whether the State Board of Nursing had an independent structure and whether it had a sunset law. We surmise that both of these factors facilitated change because independent structure might allow for more direct contact with key legislators, stakeholders, and other professionals, although many boards are also prohibited from direct lobbying. We felt that the existence of sunset laws where a change in law may be passed with a finite end date to renew may encourage more risk-taking or piloting of scope changes. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that in terms of the sunset laws being a positive impact. I conceptually would see them as a potential negative impact because it's just going to go away. But it gives the legislature an opportunity to think about other options. And they, like you're saying, they can take more risks and not just um, worry about passing something that's always going to be there indefinitely, right? That's just like doing a pilot study before you do a larger research study. Right. You're willing to take that risk. Yeah. Now, is there anything else you'd like to mention that you'd like to bring out or highlight about the article? I think I would just like to encourage nurse practitioners to focus on their interaction and impact with multiple stakeholders. You know, proximity and personal relationships are often cited as the key levers to change. And the ability to now lobby and interact with legislators through telemethods was noted by several of the nurse practitioners we interviewed as increasing their presence and ability to discuss their concerns. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank AANP for their collaboration and the AANP Research Committee for reviewing and improving this collaboration and study, as well as the Washington State University's Office of Research for funding and supporting this work. As you mentioned, at the conclusion of your study, it ended in, I believe you said December 2021, and technically the public health emergency was still in effect at that time. So is there a follow-up study plan? You know, that's an interesting question, Kim. I 
I think um, I would like to do a follow-up study, probably though not for a couple of years, because I think we still don't really understand the full impact of the changes that occurred both on a regulatory basis as well as on a personal basis during COVID. I know there are a lot of people that are studying it right now, um, but I think a couple more years in the future will give us some time to reflect and, and really analyze a path forward for nurse practitioners in their practice. Well, I think that's a great point because we're still moving with regard to COVID. This process is still ongoing and we can still see that there are various measures being taken uh, and it, it varies from place to place. And yeah, we haven't reached a, a settle down point yet from my perspective, from what, what I'm seeing and what I think our authors are seeing out there. So I agree with you. That's right. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. This is a great article. I really recommend that everyone take a look at it, not only from the methodological standpoint, but just the, the power of these findings and the implications that they have for practice. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate being here to talk to you today. And, and again, thank you to AANP for their cooperation and support during this study. And thanks to all of our listeners. And be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Thank you.